Welcome to Encounter Church. So glad that you've joined us here on the eve of Christmas Eve. And for some of us, that just sent a little bit of panic through your bones because you realize you have about 48 hours before Amazon has to deliver everything that you should have already ordered, right? I mean, I feel that too. And uh, what we want to do today and tomorrow with our Christmas Eve services is wrap up this journey that we've had around this idea of welcome to Wonderland. And I'm excited about today and tomorrow and where we're going to head. I want to begin, though, in 1962 in a studio outside of London. Dick Rowe is sitting there, and he is one of the kind of primary talent spotters for Decca Records, which is a significant record company at the time. It's arguably one of the most influential record companies in the 20th century. Uh, for those who grew up in the 80s, you recognize this name, 90s, because it was boys to men. But for the 50s, this kind of high mark for them, it was ben, Bing Crosby's uh, White Christmas. It was the number one biggest selling single ever. It stayed that way through 1997, in fact. And it was Decca that recorded it. Decca was the first one to take Oklahoma, the first time anyone took a Broadway show and turned it into an album. It was Decca. They were the innovative ones who figured out how to recreate on a record player the full sound of a human ear. It's like capacity. You could actually hear everything the ear was designed to hear. Decca Records was the world-leading innovator in music. And here... In this small room was Dick Rowe, listening, trying to discover the next up-and-coming band. He hears two bands that day and decides that one of them is the next big thing. And in the aftermath of that moment, he signs a contract with Brian Poole and the Tremolos. You've never heard of Brian Poole and the Tremolos, most likely. But you probably heard the other band that he dismissed that as they were leaving, he said to them, look, we just simply don't like their sound. And to be honest with you, good guitar music is on the way out. That's what he said to a group of four guys from Liverpool who less than two years later would be on the Ed Sullivan Show with 73 million people watching them in one of the most iconic moments in American television history. The Beatles on their full display taking over America. You see, Brian Poole and the Tremolos aren't in the record books, but the band that got dismissed is. And it's because Dick Rowe made a mistake that I think the writer of Matthew understood that we could easily make too. Matthew is the one of the writers. There's four biographies on the life of Jesus in the New Testament, and Matthew is one of those writers. Matthew was a tax collector that Jesus interacted with, and his life was transformed, and he began to follow Jesus. But he never lost his tax collecting ability. He never lost that attention to detail, his ability to walk into a picture, see the numbers, and see how those numbers could turn into a bigger picture. When good tax collectors had to find and see the whole picture and the details in the picture. And Matthew brought that skill set to his record-keeping and his writing on the life of Jesus. That's why when you read the book of Matthew, one of the things that you stand in awe of when you read it in its entirety is its editorial prowess of Matthew. You can see when you study the book of Matthew 
how Matthew meticulously arranged everything. How he chose to put some details in and, and leave other details out because he wanted you to get the picture of who Jesus really was. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, which meant there was a lot of historical religious undertones. And throughout the book of Matthew, he writes with those, that kind of attention to detail too. And I think that Matthew opens his letter, his book, with a little bit of a cautionary tale not that much different than the cautionary tale around the Beatles. His warning is like, look, if we're not careful, you can all be Dick Rowe. You can all miss the incredible that's playing out right in front of you. And he does this at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 1 and 2 lays the groundwork for the life of Jesus, the teachings, the message, and ultimately his death, burial, resurrection. And chapter 1 and chapter 2 kind of serve as a, a broad introduction to who this man called Jesus is. And in chapter 2, Matthew begins with these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King, heard this, he was, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I might go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the, child, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This story, even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably somewhat familiar with it. It's the story of the Magi. Perhaps growing up, you heard it called the story of the wise men, or uh, through kind of traditional Christmas carols, you heard the song, We Three Kings. This 12 verses is the kind of the section that Matthew, I think, purposely un unpacks a story for us that's meant to be a cautionary tale about missing the wonder right in front of us. But the challenge with this story is that, remember, this was a letter written to a Jewish group of people. The Bible was not written to us, but the Bible was written for us. And there's a nuanced difference in that. And so this first century group of people, these Jewish men and women who were hearing and reading and studying this letter that Matthew had put together, would have understood the backdrop that can be easily missed with us. And so I want to kind of just take a second before I kind of press through this passage to give you a little bit of some journalistic detail that helps, like the who and the what and the why this is all playing out. What you notice at the beginning of this passage is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, so it's after this time frame, during the period 
of King Herod, so there's this kind of historical indicator, it says that Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now the word Magi is probably not a word that you've used recently. It's not a very common word. Um, and, and Magi is probably not even the word that you would have associated with the storyline. You would have thought wise men, and you would have thought kings. But the reality is, is that who these individuals are matter. They're, they're not just wise men, and they're definitely not kings. They're magi. And a magi was an astrologer. In the ancient world, uh, oftentimes powerful leaders, kings, emperors, would have a court of advisors. And these people would have an extraordinary amount of power if they were effective in their advice. In the ancient Near East, one specific group of these people were called astrologers, and the other word was the Magi. That was what they were, this group of people were called. And astrologers studied the heavens. They believed that what happened up there was an indicator of what would happen down here. So they would pay attention to the stars. They would notice little subtleties if the eclipse happened, if there was a comet that happened. In fact, when you study history, um, oftentimes, especially in the ancient history records, what you will find is oftentimes uh, an eclipse at the wrong or right time will redirect an entire army. A comet passing over while someone is about to be born changes the whole kind of narrative of their life. Stars and astrology was a significant part of the ancient Near East. For us, it's not something we pay any attention to. But for these kings and emperors in foreign lands, there were a lot of money and a lot of influence given to these people who had this specialty. And what's happening is these astrologers have become acquainted at some point in their past with Jewish writings, specifically the Old Testament writings of the first five books of the Old Testament, what would have been called the Torah, and the book of Daniel. The reason that we understand that this happened is that these guys are coming from what's most likely the Babylonian Persian Empire that kind of stretch of land. And these people would have grown up studying the writings of one of the most famous Babylonian Persian advisors in history. A young guy who had been taken from Israel as a slave, brought in to serve over the course of his life four different kings. And he would write these letters, these visions, these prophecies, these promises of God down in what we now call the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was found in the Old Testament. It was recorded by Daniel, who would have been one of these guys' heroes. And so they would have studied Daniel's writings. They would have been intimately aware of all the promises of Daniel. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll notice that Daniel actually has some very numerically oriented promises. He talks about the number of weeks that have to play out and these time blocks that, have to, that will kind of in between this king and this king. And so these astrologers were obsessed with trying to predict the coming of this very significant individual that they didn't necessarily knew all completely what it meant, but they knew that this king, when he was born, would be the most special king in human history. Daniel's writings had predicted it. And around this time period, if you were into kind of ancient astronomy, what you would know is uh, around this time block, there's a few things happening in the heavens. One, because of some Korean and Chinese astrologers and their writings around this time period, we know that there was a massive super, supernova in the sky during this time block. Now, supernovas aren't something that you and I have probably ever seen, but for an astrologer, it's an incredible thing. 
A supernova is what happens when a star explodes. It's the last moment a star has. The weight and the pressure build up. It comes, it collapses on itself, and it ricochets in this massively bright explosion. Brighter than the sun. And so what happens at night, if you were to happen to see one, in 2016 there was actually one that was viewable in Argentina, you see a black kind of portion of the sky. All of a sudden, a speck appears. And the speck begins to glow brighter and brighter, larger and larger, and then it disappears. It looks like an explosion in the sky. Well, we know that a star just died millions of light years away, but for these astrologers, they took that as something supernatural. Simultaneously, in the heavens, at the same time, Jupiter and Saturn were in this weird alignment. And in the astrologers' kind of playbook, they had associated certain empires with certain planets. And so what was happening with Jupiter and Saturn in the kind of collision in that moment and the supernova would have easily caused people who were looking for a Jewish king to be born to notice in the stars something was happening in Jerusalem. Now, it may have been a completely supernatural event, but what I'm saying to you is that during this time period, there was a lot happening in the heavens that these individuals, and only these individuals, would have been looking for. And so what do they do? They uproot and they travel for months to get to this place. This is not an Amtrak. This is not a, it's not a Southwest airline flight that you catch. This is miles and miles and miles. This is months and months and months of nonstop travel to go from where they are to Jerusalem. When they arrive there, they naturally do what these people do. They ask the question that brought them to the city, this large city, in fact. Where's the king that's been born? This is what we've traveled for. They expected when they arrived in Jerusalem that everyone was obsessively looking or already aware of the very thing that had brought them there for months at a time of journey, right? And so when they arrive, it says that the, there's confusion. It says actually that all of Jerusalem along with King Herod is disturbed. There's confusion. Now, this is an important thing. Most of us, when we think about the Magi, we have in our head like three like old dudes on camels riding at night with a star in the distance, right? When you're just like, we three kings of Orient are, right? Like that's what pops in our head when we think. But you have to realize Jerusalem is one of the largest cities in the world at that time. And so three guys riding in on a camel or camels is a lot like three of us coming into New York City today in a Honda Accord. No one's going to notice it. It's not a big deal. Because camels are the Honda Accord of the ancient Near East. Like, it's not a significant thing. It's like, yeah, there's three Hondas. That doesn't get our attention. It doesn't get the attention of the mayor. It wouldn't get the attention, right? Like, and so what you have to realize is this is not three old guys on a camel or camels riding at night. It's more like Prince Ali from the movie Aladdin, right? It's like, Prince Ali, fabulous, he, Ali, Ababa, right? And it's like, you know, and there's this huge entourage and there's this like big moment where they break through and everyone notices because these men are incredibly powerful and they're incredibly influential. They have a lot of money and resources and they have the weight of their full kingdom. They don't roll in on the Honda Accord of the day. They come in with style. This is why the city's disturbed. Because 
If you're in a major metropolitan area and a large entourage of a foreign government shows up looking for the king, you start asking questions. Did we miss something? What is going on? Now, the reason they're disturbed is actually because of King Herod. Now, King Herod's probably not someone that you studied in your history class, but if you did, you know that King Herod was a vile, evil man. He was a ruthless kingdom builder. He built magnificent structures during his day. He made things happen. That's why the Roman Empire put him there in the first place, because he made things happen. In fact, he and Julius Caesar, successor, right? Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Caesar Augustus would be friends with King Herod, puts him in charge, and one day makes this kind of joke about Herod after arguing with him over something, that it would be better to be King Herod's pig than it would be to be his son, because the pig would last longer. Because Herod was known... Not just in Israel, but for throughout the Roman Empire is being this ruthless tyrant who, if anyone was a threat to him, he eliminated them. And this is why Caesar made that offhanded comment, because Herod had killed multiple sons and wives because he thought that they were suspiciously looking at his throne. Like this is a guy who was paranoid to the nth degree. And so when an entourage of a foreign government shows up looking for the king and it's clear it's not Herod, you get disturbed. Because is he going to start a war with these people? Is he going to chop off heads? Is he going to massacre whole groups of individuals? What's going to happen from here? And so what Herod does is Herod recognizes this moment and that there's this huge entourage that's shown up. And, and so he brings the religious leaders of the, the day, the kind of the scholars, and says, hey, tell me, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? It's clear that they're here looking for this very significant figure in Israel's history. And they say, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And the reason they, you see Bethlehem in Judea is because during this time period, there were actually two Bethlehems, right? It's when you type in your GPS, you have to type in, um, you know, there, there is another Boston. And so you're like, I don't want to go to that place or Dedham. If you happen to travel to Dedham, it's like Dedham, Maine. No, I don't want to go to Dedham, Maine or Dedham, England. I want to go to Dedham, Massachusetts, right? And so there were two different Bethlehems in Israel at the time. And so they're like, no, he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, which is about five miles outside of Jerusalem. This is essentially a suburban town of this major metropolitan area known as Jerusalem, one of the largest cities in the world at the time. They said, he's going to be born out there. And so Herod brings in the Magi secretly because he doesn't want to cause a stir. He doesn't want to kind of get the city worked up about this Messiah that's been born. And so he brings the Magi in and he feigns this kind of allegiance. And he says, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Won't you go find him for me? And please let me know, because I want to go and worship him too. Now, the word worship can be a little confusing for us, because we read the word worship, and we think like the music that we just sung. But the worship was really more about physically kind of bowing down and recognizing the significance and the power of... And so the word would be used for kings and emperors. Um, Herod would have worshipped Caesar Augustus when he interacted with him. And so this, this word worship doesn't necessarily have a spiritual undertone to it. It just means 
you're in the presence of someone who has a greater authority than you do. And so you bow down to them. And so he says, I want to do that. And so what happens is that they're directed and it, the Magi go on and they see the star. At this point, it's no longer a supernova. It's no longer Jupiter and Saturn in some type of arrangement and proximity of one another. Um, it's clearly something supernatural. And they follow it. And they come to this house. And Bethlehem is a pretty small town. There would only have been about 20 boys under the age of two years old at the time. So it wouldn't have taken long for this entourage of people to find this baby boy, especially with the presence of a star. Because of the conversation they have with Herod, what we know is that they approach Jesus, and Jesus is somewhere between six months old to, um, to two years old. Most likely, Jesus is already walking. He's a toddler. And this huge entourage of people arrive at the house, and it says that they see the toddler, they recognize who they are, and they bow down. This entire entourage bows down. Think about it. To a toddler. And then they begin to present gifts. It says that they present gold. This is gold inside of water because ain't nobody got time for that. And I don't want to be attacked, especially when there's a large uh, kind of peppermint cane out there. And um, it says that they present um, frankincense and myrrh. And so this is what they present to the toddler. This resin, that one burned, has a very distinct odor to it. These objects have ultimately what's happened through history is that this moment that I'm currently reenacting and presenting for you has, has clouded, I think, what Matthew intended this story to do for you and I. You see, the, there eventually arose, hundreds of years later, this obsession with this moment. They, people started attributing the gifts to mean something. They were like, oh, well, gold pointed to his royalty and his divinity and the, the myrrh. Well, you know, the myrrh pointed to, to the resurrection and his, his death and this fragrant incense that comes out of frankincense. And they kind of built up this whole industry around this idea of what these things meant. Now, the reason the Magi come into the presence of toddler Jesus and present these gifts is because this is incredibly valuable at this time. I ordered this on Amazon. I did not fear for my life when it arrived at my door. Had this been 2,000 years ago, armed guards would have brought this. Because what I'm currently holding in my hand, right? So here's, here's frankincense. Frankincense at this time period is about as valuable as gold is. So this little tiny piece of whatever that is in my hand, people would kill for this. This is incredibly, incredibly valuable. And so is myrrh. And so the reason they bring these objects to toddler Jesus is because they recognize, notice, they say not the one born to be king, they bring it to the one who is already the king. Notice the verbiage that says he was born king of the Jews, not born to be king of the Jews. He was not born a prince. He was born the king. Huge difference between the two. They recognize he already has the authority. He already has the significance and the value 
Right? And so what do they do? They bring valuable objects to him. They see his worth. And what happened throughout history is that the Magi and the Entourage eventually became old dudes riding on camels and gave them names. And then it became three of them. And we lost the power of what was happening in that moment. Right? What's more impressive in your mind? Three old people on a camel bringing this or an entire entourage of a foreign government arriving and bowing on their face before a toddler. That is incredible. And Matthew positions this story at the beginning of his book because I think he wanted to warn us to not be a dick row and miss the Beatles. I think he was trying to make the point, like, look, you're about to read the story, the greatest story that has ever unfolded. Don't miss it. Don't miss what's happening around it. Because God has stepped into our turf. And if you're not careful, you can make the same mistake that Herod and the religious leaders did, which is they rejected him because he did not come on their terms. They were looking for a God on their turf who also came under their terms. And the Magi understood something had happened that was significant. And they came to toddler Jesus on his terms, understanding he was more significant than what they, their minds could understand. And that's why this entire entourage bows down. J.K. Rowling is probably one of the most financially successful authors um, in human history. Today, she's worth about a billion dollars because of a series of books that she wrote over 20 years ago. Most of you are probably familiar. I would probably wager that some of you have actually even read it. Because her first book, Harry Potter, is the third most sold book in the last 50 years. You think about that. Books worldwide. Her book, Harry Potter, is the third most sold in the last 50 years. Over 300 million copies have been sold in 60 different languages. But what's fascinating about J.K. Rowling is that J.K. Rowling sends the manuscript of Harry Potter to 12 different publishers, and they all reject it. The 13th publisher, a publisher known as Bloomsbury, gets the first chapter, and the owner of Bloomsbury hands the first chapter to his eight-year-old daughter. Now, what happens is that his eight-year-old daughter reads it and comes back to him begging for the next chapter. She's like, Dad, this is the most incredible thing I've ever read. What's the next chapter? I want to know what happens. And her dad has this light bulb moment of like, oh my goodness, my eight-year-old is begging me to read. Maybe there's something here. Because he was in danger of doing the same thing the other 12 had done, which was dismissing Harry Potter. And yet what happened was this eight-year-old little girl who was not jaded, 
who was not cynical, who was not arrogant in what she thought and what she already knew. She was able to see it for what it was. A blockbuster waiting to happen. And essentially, at the end of the day, J.K. Rowling was discovered by an eight-year-old. And the reason she was discovered by an eight-year-old when 12 other major publishing houses had missed it is because I think she did the same thing that the Magi did. She approached that chapter on its terms, not her own. She stepped into it for what it was worth. She didn't expect it to fit into her box, her terms, her world, her schema, her, her understanding. She just approached it. The Magi did not get caught up in the fact that they were bowing down in the presence of a toddler. They realized that they were in the presence of greatness. It didn't matter if that greatness was only two years old at that point. They understood there was something significant happening. The religious leaders and Herod, they dismiss it outright because it doesn't fit their box. It's not on their terms. It's not, he's not a controllable entity. He doesn't come in the way the Messiah is supposed to come in. You see, I think that Matthew's trying to give us this cautionary tale that what you're going to find in chapters 3 to 28, if you're not careful, will be largely dependent on how you approach chapters 3 through 28. If you expect Him to fit your terms and your frame, you may miss Him. You may miss the most important thing that has ever happened in human history if you're not careful. And we will miss something far more significant than the Beatles, is what he's saying to us. Right? There is something big happening. It reminded me of the Russian cosmonauts. Uh, in the 60s, there was this uh, great space race between the Americans and the Russians. And the Russians were the first ones to kind of get a human up into outer space. And when they returned, uh, they made this offhanded statement about, well, we entered the heavens today, and guess what? We discovered that there was no God there. And this kind of became a secondary headline to the Russian cosmonauts making it to outer space, was the fact that uh, astronauts arrive in outer space to only find that God's not present there. And that I think that Herod and the, the religious leaders make the same mistake. They think God's going to come on their terms in the way that they want, as if somehow God's a slot machine or a genie to be rubbed. And the cosmonauts' offhanded comment completely missed the reality that God did something far, far greater than living on the second floor and coming down to the first. He became part of our story and dwelt with us. And that... Perhaps you're here today, and maybe if you're being honest, you are more in that camp of the cosmonauts. You're skeptical, you're not sure what you believe, but you have this kind of sense that, well, if God's there, I don't see Him anywhere. And I think Matthew's challenge to you is that you, he's not demanding that you believe in Jesus. He's asking that you approach Jesus on Jesus' terms, not your own. That you're not like the old drunks, the joke about the old drunk who loses his keys and he's looking for his keys underneath the street light because the street lamp because the light's better there. He didn't lose his keys there, but he lost his, 
He lost his keys over there, but the light's better here, so he's only going to stay in this spot to find his keys. He's saying, look, be careful that you don't frame this thing out in, in a way that causes you to miss the most important piece of this story. He's like, you don't have to believe it, but you do have to come open-minded to the, to the realization and to this storyline I'm going to unfold in chapters 3 through 28. And that if you're here and that's where you are, I would encourage you. You don't have to tell anybody, but don't outright reject it because he doesn't come on your terms. Be willing to explore it on his. And if you're a reader, you're a thinker, I applaud that. In fact, that's why inside our app today, there's, there's a link that says you review. And if you click on that, you'll see Explore Christianity. If you tap on that link, I want to send you a book, a Christmas present. I'm not going to hound you. I'm not going to ask you to coffee. It's a free book that was hugely influential in my kind of religious struggles that I had in my 20s when I was, I kind of rejected Christianity and was processing through what, is there a God? If there is a God, what's that God like? And this book was a really helpful book for me in my journey. And I would honestly just like to give it to you for free. No strings attached. I'm not going to follow up, ask if you read it. I just want to give it to you. I think you would find it hugely intriguing because it's a really well-written book. And if you do that and you read it and you want to talk, great. I'll take you to coffee too. And we can have, I think, exciting dialogue about all kinds of deep and profound things to press into this question. But Matthew's request for you and I is that we would lean into this story with openness. Open to the fact of how God comes in our turf in His terms. And for those who are, perhaps who are here who are Christians, I think that the image of that entourage is a huge kind of eye-opening moment for us. That they understood, get this right, they come and they bow down to a toddler because they understand his greatness. They did not understand his godness. They did not understand that they were in the presence of God. They just thought they were in the presence of greatness. And that we see these two different tensions of how to respond. And that it says that when the magi see the star, they're overjoyed. And in the Greek, the, the way Matthew originally wrote this letter in the Greek language, overjoyed is actually four Greek words. Because in the ancient way of writing, there was not exclamation marks, there were not underlines or italics. The way you emphasize something is you would repeat a word multiple times. And so the Magi, when they see the star and they come upon Jesus to capture the excitement that they have, the writer says that they're thrilled, they're excited, they're overwhelmed. It's incredible. Like it's this building of the use of four words to capture the excitement. And all they had was the recognition they were in the presence of greatness. They did not know they were in the presence of God. And the majesty of the Christ Christian story and the Christmas story, what we'll spend time unpacking tomorrow in our Christmas Eve services is that headline that God is with us and how that headline changes everything. But for us, if you're here today and you are a Christian, when you say the words Merry Christmas, it means more to you than just a simple holiday greeting. It is a declaration of hope. 
It is a belief not just that we've been in the presence of greatness like the, the Magi believe, but that we've been in the presence of God, that God's presence stepped into ours and that it changed everything. And that the belief that God pursued us, that He loved us, that He chased after us, that He stepped into our storyline to write a different storyline should shift the way we say the words Merry Christmas. Because it's not just a simple holiday greeting. It's a declaration of hope. No matter what's happening in our life. Because our hope is rooted in what's already happened in His. And that for you, perhaps if there is an honesty, is that for you to lean in that maybe there's more to faith than what you currently expect or believe or even think. That for some of us, we grew up going to a certain faith tradition or we grew up going to kind of certain church services and our limitation, our kind of cap to our faith was what we experienced back then. And we've never wondered, we've never even leaned into the idea that there actually might be more to faith than what you know. And I think the call for us in this story, Matthew's whisper to us is that there is more to Jesus to explore. And so in that same you review thing that I referenced in the app, there's a sign up for the 112. And I want to encourage you, if you're open, you want to learn more about your faith, you want to learn, I don't care if you have been a Christian most of your life or you just stepped into it this year like some of you have. I am telling you emphatically that there is room for you to grow in your faith. And the 112 is a phenomenal place to start that journey. It's free and it's life-changing. Those two rarely ever come together. And we will launch that in the fall. I mean, in, in the beginning of spring and around February. And so if you just let us know you're open, we'll go ahead and send you an email when the dates are locked in so that you can be one of the first people to know when it's kicking off. But I would encourage you, if you're here and you're a Christian, Matthew's word and whispers, there's more. And while ultimately we'll dig into that more tomorrow, the last thing I want to leave you with is when you take a step back from the story, I think Matthew's principle is really helpful just in general. Even if you're not sure what you believe, even if you honestly are just counting down the moments till the Patriots game and for me shutting up, right? Like, which is okay. I understand. There is still something for you in this in a principle level, which is that if we're not careful, we can miss the most important things. We can miss the Beatles right in front of our face. We can miss the J.K. Rowling playing out in front of us. We can miss our kids growing up. We can miss our relationship with our spouse deteriorating. We can miss our life drifting further and further. It is really easy to miss the most important things. And on December 30th, we will not have services that Sunday morning because we want to honor our volunteers who will sacrifice today and tomorrow to create three different services because tomorrow when you arrive, it's not the same sermon. It's not the same music. It's not same kids' environments. They have duplicated today and tomorrow. Completely different. And to honor them and the sacrifices and the hard work that goes on behind the scenes this week, we won't have services on the 30th. But I have put in the app for you two more things. This is like Christmas early for the app. And that you review is two different links. One is a link that's a reflection and review on you. 
And it's a series of questions that come from some friends of ours that I think are really helpful questions that, to help look back on 2018 and to have a series of questions to help you look ahead to 2019. And if you're married or you're, you have a family, there's another section completely kind of right underneath that one with questions about your family, about your relationships. Because Matthew's principle is it's really easy to miss the most important things in your life. It's really easy to become distracted, to become kind of drifting. And so if for nothing else out of this message today, you work through those you review questions, I think what you'll find is that 2019 can be a year filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. That 2019 can hold promise for you no matter where you are. And I can say that because what I'll unpack tomorrow, this has been the hardest year of our life. But the beauty and wonder of Christmas is not what is happening. It's that hope comes from what has already happened. That is our source of wonder in the midst of our wondering. Let's pray.